Former Congressman Pete McCloskey came on Radio Parallax in 2006 to discuss something that he had to do. Though in retirement from representing the Palo Alto area in Congress for eight terms, the Peninsula lawyer and Cape Valley farmer decided to challenge Republican Congressman Richard Pombo in the wake of the latter's talking about getting rid of the Endangered Species Act. You see, while in Congress, Pete McCloskey co-authored that very legislation. His primary challenge to Pombo stirred enough dissent to see Jerry McNerney unseat him in the general election. This was not exactly the first time Mr. McCloskey had stepped forward into a fight. As a U.S. Marine, he'd fought in the Korean War, where his actions earned numerous citations. He got elected to Congress in 1969 with a very dim view of what was going on in Vietnam. When Richard Nixon failed to honor his pledge to end the conflict in Southeast Asia, and in fact expanded it with a secret bombing campaign into neighboring Laos and Cambodia, Pete McCloskey decided to do the unthinkable and challenge an incumbent president. We have been keen to continue our conversation about political challenges and environmental issues, and we'd also like to discuss his anti-war activism in Congress. So we could hardly believe our good fortune here at Radio Parallax in being invited to Pete McCloskey's farm in Cape Valley to talk issues and hopefully a few personalities. I'm delighted to say thank you for returning to Radio Parallax, Congressman Pete McCloskey, and thank you for having us. Pleasure. Kind of fun to rem remember old things because I've had a lot of friends and a lot more enemies. Well, I like to start off where we left off a few years back. You came on the show. You were coming off the bench at that point and were instrumental in defeating Richard Pombo and thus helping preserve the Endangered Species Act. And I just want to note that that, that just must feel pretty good. Yeah, and McNerney is in a fight for his life again this year because the Cots and the Republicans will throw a lot of money. There are five congressional districts in California where the Democratic and the Republican votes were within 1% of each other. One of them is a guy named Barra over here that took out... Uh, Don Lundgren, a couple of years ago, he's against a guy named Osi, who served there for three terms. McNerney is going to have a similar fight, and there's a couple, three people down in Southern California that are seats that are going to depend on how many people turn out the vote as opposed to how much money the Koch brothers throw in for their candidates. Well, I want to note for our listeners uh, that for many years you championed environmental legislation, yet you always held office as a Republican. And I think that must seem remarkable to many people today, uh, given the current uh, stands of the GOP. And I guess that is sort of a sad commentary on where things have gone. Well, my family have been Republicans in this state since 1859. My great-grandfather went to Wairika and then down to Merced County, where he was a farmer. Uh, both he and my grandfather were members of the Republican Central Committee of Merced County in the 1880s. So it was hard for me to become a Democrat. But I'll tell you, after Jerry Ford, who was a wonderful man and pro-choice, and then George Bush Sr., who were great Republican, I like Bob Dole. But after them, the party has turned more and more right-wing, not only against family planning, but against birth control. And that kind of knocked me over the edge. In 2007, I became a Democrat. 
Well, I'd like, I like to turn the clock back and review it how it is you came to Congress. Uh, you were a Stanford grad, both undergraduate law school, decorated Marine. You had been thriving in the legal world. And I'm just kind of curious as to about your relationship with that Bay Area Republican Party, because when you ran for Congress, you had to go up against Shirley Temple Black, and she was certainly a party stalwart. I won, I think, because it was a special election where Democrats could vote Republican, Republicans could vote Democrat. There were 11 candidates, and Shirley Temple should have won. She had the name recognition. She had the backing. I was against the Vietnam War then at a time when two-to-one were for the war. It was a, I won in spite of my views. But I had a lot of good friends that came and walked precincts for me on Election Day. And when I was elected, primaries, 68, 70, 72, 74, there was blood on the floor. I Once I won only because two other guys split the vote, the Republicans hated me. I mean, the Republican Party prayer breakfast would meet and, <laughs> and pray to nuke Hanoi. I mean, I, I just didn't fit in to the Republicans until Jerry Ford became president. And he and I were good friends, and he was a wonderful man. And so I had, because of Jerry Ford, uh, after 1974, when Nixon finally resigned, I had eight more years in the Congress where I was a working congressman. We had a Democratic majority. But in those days, Democrats and Republicans talked to each other politely, with courtesy, with respect. And legislation was enacted because they could compromise. And I had wonderful chairman, uh, John Dingell of Michigan, uh, was a wonderful man on the wildlife stuff. Uh, uh, Mo Udall of Arizona, a wonderful man. Dave Obie of Wisconsin. We had mutual respect. I really regret that when Newt Gingrich came to power in 1995, he ended that friendship. Democrats to him were enemies, traitors, uh, not patriotic Americans. And so by pushing that view as he had, and then with Bush Jr. becoming president, the Congress has lapsed into something that I would not want to be in today. Well, I do want to note there is a great YouTube description of that initial campaign of yours for Congress from your associate, uh, Lewis Butler, and I would really highly recommend that for listeners. He talk, tells some stories about you uh, getting in some scrapes, I guess. <laughs> well, Lewis had come out of the Peace Corps in 1963, and I then had a small firm in Palo Alto called McCloskey, Wilson, and Mosier. And we hired a young man named Larry Sonsini in 1966. And Larry Sonsini built that firm into the largest in California. And they got the rise of Silicon Valley in 1967 after I left. And those guys are all millionaires now. And I'm kicking myself, why would I leave a wonderful law practice and the beauty of California and go to Washington? But in any event, Lou... Uh, and I formed the first environmental law firm. And we took, I think we had five cases. One was to prevent San Francisco Bay from being filled, which later we did. One was to put 20 acres zoning into Napa County, which saved the, the vineyards from development. One was to save the little town of Volcano from being made into a cement mill. <laughs> and if you've ever been to Volcano, it and Murphy's are the two crown jewels of the Sierra, I think. Mm -hmm. So in the middle of that, I run for Congress, and then Lou comes, and Lou becomes the third man at HEW in the Nixon administration because Bob Finch became secretary of HEW, Jack Veneman, a Merced farmer, peach farmer, became assistant, 
and Lou was the number three. Well, Lou was also the first man to voluntarily give up power. And in his, he was in charge of health policy, if you can believe this, in the first years of Medicare. And in 1971, Lou wrote a, pres a letter to President Nixon. The letter said, Dear Mr. President, the greatest honor you have ever done me was to put me in your cabinet at this level, which is like at the rank of lieutenant general. Is therefore the only way I can express my dismay at your invasion of Cambodia, your renewed bombing in Vietnam, is to resign forthwith, respectfully, Louis Butler. And he left Washington, the first guy to ever give up power voluntarily. That's almost a rule that once people have power, they'll never give it up. It was followed by Elliot Richardson and Jack Venom I mean, and uh, Bill Ruckelshaus, who refused to fire Archibald Cox at Nixon's order, and then by Cy Vance, who resigned when they didn't clue him in on the attempted uh, rescue of the hostages. But those four people are, are rare in American history to voluntarily give up power as a matter of principle. We are speaking with former congressman and legendary maverick, Pete McCloskey. Well, I want to note that um, as a member of the Marine Corps Reserve, you were in a kind of an odd position of being um, less hawkish about Vietnam than many of your constituents. And I would note that at that time, um, uh, it was not long after Daniel Ellsberg released the Pentagon Papers, that uh, you quote an amazing thing from General Matthew Ridgway. Uh, you quote this in The Taking of Hill um, 610, that he told you that he thought the most important contribution he'd made to the country was keeping us out of Bien Ben Phu and Vietnam back in 1954. I'm wondering, what was happening at that, about that point to stiffen your, your, uh, your resolve against well, Vietnam? Well, I guess you knew this, that in 65, I was a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Reserve, and one of my friends had his leg blown off, and I was went to see him, and here was this professional Marine saying, we can't win because we can't win the minds and hearts of Vietnamese who were blowing up their villages. And I wrote a letter to the Commandant requested active duty in Vietnam. I felt I owed that service. I'd been trained in counterinsurgency. I'd had a rifle company for eight years in the Reserve. And luckily I was turned down. But then when I was elected to Congress in December of 67, right after Christmas, I went to Vietnam for the first of three visits. And I did it again in 70 and 71. And the third time I came back and I was I was so offended by what we were doing. We were destroying a people that against, we had no animosity against Vietnamese people. We were destroying their villages. We were moving them into barbed wire enclosures so they couldn't give aid to the Viet Cong. Our bombing, our, the Agent Orange, it was an outrage I, to me. And I think I became obsessed with ending the war as a Marine, because I didn't like what Marines were having to do over there, among other things. In any event, I got the word after I had said I'd run against Nixon. I tried to talk Percy and Mark Hatfield and John Lindsay, um, Republicans who also opposed the war at that time. Nobody would challenge him. So I challenged him. And then I heard the word that Matt Ridgway, who had retired, was living up in Pennsylvania, and he too opposed Vietnam. So I, I got through on a telephone call to him, and I said, General, I said, I was awfully proud to serve under you in Korea because you renewed the morale of the 8th Army in Korea, got it from being a bug-out opposition to a working army, and we drove back across the north, across the parallel. 
And I know of your record in Italy and Europe where you were a distinguished paratroop general. And he said, young man, he said, I agree with what you're doing. The Vietnam War is wrong, but you honor me too much because the greatest thing I did for this country was when I was chief of staff of the Army at the time of Dien Bien Phu. And Nixon was urging President Eisenhower to go to the aid of the French, not just with air power, but with troops. And I convinced President Eisenhower that we should not get committed to Vietnam. And he said, in my career, long career, I feel that was the finest thing I did for my country. And that was, it was impressive because he was a great military leader, and yet he opposed the war, as did General David Shoup, who had been commandant, the hero of Tarawa, the man who almost got driven into the beach after the Tarawa landing. But he had been commandant, and he opposed Vietnam. But it was rare to find a military officer on active duty who didn't feel you have to be loyal to the commander-in-chief. Right. I had felt that way when I first announced for Congress that Marine Lieutenant Colonel, I had to be loyal to the commander-in-chief. But then uh, Johnson said, well, if you want to blame me for the war, blame the Congress. They authorized the war, and they're funding the war. So I had to change my position. I wrote a paper why I was opposed to Vietnam, and it was a difficult thing to to change from the Marine mentality of, yes, we can do it, you tell us where to go, we'll fight, to recognizing what Smedley Butler said when he said, you know, we Marines say we fight for right and honor and dignity of the individual, but in my career in Central America, and he'd fought in nearly all those countries down there, Mexico, Guatemala, he said, we were fighting to either preserve a dictator or to preserve Standard Oil or the telephone company or the Anaconda Copper, to make sure that the government was in power that favored American interests. I have just written a book, and I've said something to the same effect, that Marines will fight for other Marines, and they'll go where they're ordered. They're a superb military organization, but I'm not proud of where Marines have been asked to fight. It goes back to 1893, when a bunch of planters in Hawaii wanted to overthrow the Queen, and they asked, and they sent 100 Marines in 1893 to Hawaii. They overthrew the Queen and established a provisional government of white planters of pineapples. Ever since then, America, to me, has become more and more arrogant in our treatment of foreign countries. And we don't know much about foreign countries. Only the few people in our State Department and some of our businessmen understand anything, what's going on in Thailand or India or Pakistan or all of the countries of the world where we haven't hesitated to go in and bomb and now use drones, military force. And we are responsible in many ways. We overthrew Mossadegh, the first elected ruler in Iran. I mean, the Iranians have every reason sure. to hate Americans sure. when we overthrew their elected leader. Chile, so Nixon sent an assassination down, team down to kill President Allende, who had been elected in Chile. So when we talk about democracy, we're talking about, oh yeah, we want elections, but only if our person is elected. Somebody who will support American business. So I, I just, I've gotten to be somewhat critical of our government in recent years. Well, I, I want to note, I'm curious because you say you went to, you traveled over to find out about what was going on in Vietnam. There was a hidden war going on in Cambodia. We know what happened with the Khmer Rouge. Uh, Prince Sihanouk who was deposed by us, later blamed the destruction of his country on two people, 
President Nixon and Dr. Henry Kissinger, and and they were actually people I think now know. But they were falsifying the logs of where the bombs were being dropped, saying they were being taking place over Vietnam. They were violating the neutrality of neighboring nations. My question is, had you gotten wind of this from whistleblowers? It eventually became a national story, but did you have some idea this was going on? Well, both that and also in the Mideast. But I was a Marine, and when you, when I went to Vietnam on those three occasions and then to Laos, I talked with the sergeants and the lieutenants. But the majors and lieutenant colonels and the generals, you couldn't get the truth from them. But mm -hmm. the guys on the ground would tell you the truth. And when I went over to Vietnam, I interviewed a bunch of pilots, lieutenants, who'd flown over Laos, flown over Cambodia. And our government was saying, oh, no, we're not flying over Cambodia and Laos. That was the official position. And I came back with, oh, maybe 12 affidavits of pilots who had flown over Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia. And when I confronted this, the government said, oh, no, we're not doing it. And at that time, I had a wonderful man, Dick Borda, who had been my executive officer in the Reserve Rifle Company in San Bruno. And Dick is now Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Logistics over in Vietnam. And Dick came to my office and said, Pete, what's this crazy thing you're saying that we're bombing in Laos and Cambodia? Here's the Undersecretary of the Air Force saying, we're not bombing over there. Wow. Well, I showed him the affidavits. And while he was there, I get a phone call. My secretary comes in and says, you have a phone call from Lieutenant Colonel somebody at uh, Omaha, Nebraska, or somewhere in Nebraska. And they'd been on television, this argument. And the Lieutenant Colonel says, sir, I'm a Lieutenant Colonel so-and-so of the United States Air Force, and I've just returned from commanding the so-called something bomber wing in Vietnam, and you're telling the truth, and the government is not. We are bombing over Laos and Cambodia. And I said, well, thank you, Colonel. I took his name down. Five minutes later, the phone rings again. It's his wife saying, please, Congressman. My husband's been in the Air Force for eight, 19 and a half years. He's about to retire. This will ruin his career. And I assured him, well, I don't need to use his name, ma'am, because I've got these other right. affidavits. Five minutes later, the colonel calls again. <laughs> Congressman, I insist that you use my name. I know my wife doesn't want you to use it. So uh, that afternoon, I later, my friend goes back to the Pentagon, and he calls me. He said, Pete, could you meet me at this address in Arlington at 8 o'clock tonight? I said, sure. So I drive my Honda or whatever that little car was. I drive, and it's a kind of a ritzy neighborhood, and it's the cul-de-sac, the address. And I drive in, this, and uh, right at 8 o'clock, this limousine pulls around into the cul-de-sac with two flags on the fenders. And it pulls up behind my little car, and Dick Borda jumps out and opens the door on the left. He says, Pete, I want you to meet my boss, the Secretary of the Air Force. I think his name was Siemens. And so the driver <laughs> turns on his lights, and under the headlights, I show him these affidavits. Well, two days later, it was announced that Nixon had been secretly bombing Laos and Cambodia, that the Secretary of the Air Force was not told, the Secretary of the Army and the Navy weren't told, only the Secretary of Defense, Miller Laird, knew about it. The pilots had been falsifying, or somebody had been falsifying the records of where they flew every day, but now they had to admit it. So you were instrumental in the whole process, I did not know. Well, 
you can't trust the government to tell the truth, particularly at the highest levels. They will say anything that keeps them from being embarrassed. We told you he was a political maverick. We have to pause a moment in our chat with Pete McCloskey to take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax, and we've got plenty more in our third segment. Stick around. <laughs> 